Are you looking for ways to attract and retain private pay clients? Thryzer is a payment platform for therapists built to help clients automatically tap into their out-of-network benefits and save on therapy up front. Check out our special link, join.thryzer.com forward slash modern therapist, and use the code modern therapists to activate $2,500 in free payments with Thryzer. Therapy Notes, the number one trusted EHR among mental health professionals, just keeps getting better and better. With legendary customer support 24 hours a day, seven days a week, they're giving you all the tools you need to succeed, whether you're a solo clinician or a group practice. Try them free for two months using promo code MODERN today. You're listening to the Modern Therapist Survival Guide, where therapists live, breathe, and practice as human beings. To support you as a whole person and a therapist, here are your hosts, Kurt Widhelm and Katie Vernoy. Hey, Modern Therapists, we're so excited to offer the opportunity for one unit of continuing education for this podcast episode. Once you've listened to this episode, to get CE credit, you just need to go to moderntherapistcommunity.com, register for your free profile, purchase this course, pass the post-test, and complete the evaluation. Once that's all completed, you'll get a CE certificate in your profile, or you can download it for your records. For a current list of our CE approvals, check out moderntherapistcommunity.com. Once again, hop over to moderntherapistcommunity.com for one CE once you've listened. Woohoo! Welcome back, Modern Therapists. This is the Modern Therapist Survival Guide. I'm Kurt Winhelm with Katie Renoy, and this is another one of our continuing education eligible episodes. If you want CEs for this episode, follow the directions at the beginning and the end of the episode, or go to our show notes over on mtsgpodcast.com. And we are talking today about ineffective therapy, about our hatred of manualized treatments, and why <laughs> that might not be the best of things. So in my own justifications of this episode, I actually realized that I do more evidence-based treatments than I care to admit. I'm actually more of a model <laughs> follower than I may have let on to the audience and Maybe I'm just doing some revisionist history here over a couple of hundred episodes, but I think we're going to do some callbacks to some old episodes here that are maybe at first glance kind of contradictory to what we're talking about today. But I think that it fits in with everything. So when we prepare for these kinds of episodes, we tend to share some of what we're talking about with each other. It's I think it's pretty obvious if you go back to some of these CE episodes, which ones are more me-led and which ones are more Katie-led. This one being a Kurt-led episode, this is not a Team Kurt, Team Katie sort of thing. <laughs> this is a who's doing the heavy lifting of the research here. Just in preparation for some of these, we don't end up both reading all of the articles here. So we do have a basis for what we're talking about. We're going to talk about some of our experiences. We're going to make some of you a little bit upset and... Or a lot upset. Or a lot upset. <laughs> so get your pitchforks and join our Facebook group, the Modern <laughs> Therapist Group, or follow us on social media and let us know what you think. But we're going to talk about therapeutic drift today and what that is, what it means for clients, what it means for us and ways that we can address this as individuals and systemically. So that way, therapy can be as good as it could be. 
Okay. Just at first glance, Katie, what is therapeutic drift? When I read the little snippets that you forwarded over to me, the, the idea of therapeutic drift or clinical drift or therapist drift seems to be that therapists move away from the models that they have been trained upon and start just doing whatever they want. <laughs> <laughs> and and shockingly, it leads to clients not getting the outcomes that they want. Well, according to these research articles, right? I think there's there's a lot that we have to get into. I think more nuance than what you're describing so far about what that actually means. Because when when I was looking through these articles and thinking about it myself, I think there is potentially a bias in the research if it's the CBT folks that are doing the research. <laughs> <laughs> so I want to hear what's going on before I, I go much further, because it seems to me that you are learning a lot here and wanting to revise your statements around evidence-based practices or manualized treatments. <laughs> so I'm going to start with the definition. This is from a 2016 article by Glenn Waller and Hannah Turner called Therapist Drift Redux, Why Well-Meaning Clinicians Fail to Deliver Evidence-Based Therapy and How to Get Back on Track. And they defined therapeutic drift as this occurs when clinicians fail to deliver the optimum evidence-based treatment despite having the necessary tools and is an important factor in why those therapies are commonly less effective than they should be in routine clinical practice. I know in some of our preparation for this episode, you know, and being able to kind of review and refine some of the messaging that we've put out there before is Katie and I are big on common factors type things. We really do appreciate a lot of therapeutic alliance type stuff. We've gone in depth on how to build therapeutic alliance in some of our previous episodes, how to measure that, how to check back in with clients on if those things are still continuing to work out. And I think in our version of describing some manualized treatments before that we lay out that sometimes that piece of manualized treatment gets kind of glossed over. It gets kind of rushed through things. And that's why some manualized treatments don't work. And maybe the impetus for the call for a lot of us to move out of you know, community mental health agencies and into our own practices allows for a little bit more freedom to be able to focus on building those relationships and using some of that therapeutic alliance in order to, I don't know, help clients. But... <laughs> <laughs> but it seems like in talking with a lot of therapists across our careers that when we start to talk about therapeutic alliance and the ways of joining with the client, helping to come to an agreement on what the goals of therapy are and an agreement on how we're going to address those goals still leaves a lot of space to be able to do evidence-based practices from the very beginning. This is just kind of in the first couple of sessions saying, hey, there's some treatments out there that have really good evidence that allow for us to address this particular problem. And the one that seems to be the most robust in treating for example, a particular phobia seems to come from something called exposure and response prevention. And here's the evidence behind this. And here's how it would look for us. Does this sound like something that would, you would move forward on? 
I think that little brief description is a key to a lot of building therapeutic alliance in that, hey, I'm a clinician, I have a plan, and I'm getting your buy-in to this plan from the very beginning that sets up manualized treatments or evidence-based treatments to actually be effective. It's how well we then adhere to those plans that ends up being therapeutic drift or not. But I think in framing some of this conversation with our body of other podcast episodes and everything else is we're not anti-manualized treatment. We're anti-not doing it well, or we're not, (laughs) we're anti, you know, we're anti-bad therapy. And part of what makes good therapy is being able to use a good basis of some of the evidence that actually does work. I mean, we have an episode called Is CBT Crap? And we'll we'll link to that in the show notes. But I think we, when I went back and listened to it, it really is what you're describing. So this is not completely revisionist history, but it, it really is very cautious about these evidence-based or manualized treatments. And I, I want to clarify that the evidence base that is around CBT or those types of things isn't the only evidence base. There's a lot of different sure. types of treatment, different frameworks and models that have evidence and or are building evidence that could still be well used. I mean, you're not saying that we all need to start using CBT or EMDR or DBT or ERP or whatever it is and all, all the alphabets. But there is that element of when we look at common factors, yes, the relationship's very important, but having agreed upon goals and a model is part of common factors. It doesn't yes. it doesn't excuse us from having a plan and specific interventions. I think the thing when I was reading through some of this stuff that I get concerned about that I, I don't agree with is this idea of being adherent to a model uh, 100% of your therapy. I think, yes, ERP, you need to be adherent to it. Like that is a particular type of treatment for a particular type of, of issue that you need to be adherent for. But to me, I think there's this other element of when we have a client that comes in with a lot of complexity, a single evidence-based practice done adherently may solve one problem and not all of them. And I think that's where I want to get into the discussion around what is it that we're actually talking about? Because to me... The way if we go strictly to a kind of black and white, black and white model here, we're looking at somebody needs to do 10 sessions of CBT and that's going to be what it looks like versus using tools from evidence-based practices, from promising models, from those things within an integrated model, right? To me, I think there's, there's an element of this where in research, it is very nice to have a discrete problem with a discrete treatment and it will get results. But when we're looking at real clients in the real world, they're very complex and they don't just, ha- most of them don't just have a discrete problem. And so, what is successful treatment? Now, you've already said talk to the client, go back to the client, those types mm-hmm. of things, like that's part of the relationship. But I think who is defining success in these? meta-analyses that you're bringing up because to me it's like if we're going to start if the if the premise that we're starting with is that people are getting worse outcomes because they're not using evidence-based practices who's defining what successful outcomes are in these studies so without directly answering that and maybe getting to 
this and helping our audience on this is coming back to these conversations to the client is the common factors piece of it that helps the client to be the one who determines whether or not things are successful. That is our our ultimate takeaway as far as this piece of the argument goes. I'm sure that some of the studies that are out there, and I know that there's well over 100 studies that look at therapist drift, and I didn't read them all, people, but... <laughs> we don't have that kind of time. But the articles that I look at kind of look more at some of the client's feelings of not achieving success. This isn't necessarily, you know, insurance companies or, you know, agency sort of descriptions of, you know, clients not reaching their treatment. There is some agency issues that we'll talk about in in this episode here, but this is the ability to get clients to the place where they want to be, which is common factors. Okay. I mean, if if we're looking at it from a place of client-defined successful outcomes, then I think this is something that I want to dig more deeply in. If it was like, hey, you have a, a CBT, your thought process is a little bit better, or you're not afraid of thing A, but now you're afraid of thing B, like, you know, I, that was the thing that I think I, I really struggled with in community mental health was that it was you get to a particular goal and funding runs out and off you go. And it, and the complexity of the cases were not addressed by success. Right. <laughs> and so, so I want to dig in with this because I think there's, there's a lot here that I think is really important to think about. And to me, it seems like the gold is going to be in the nuance, not in just use evidence-based practices. That's not what we're saying. Right. Now there are some, client issues that lead to therapeutic drift. And this is largely going to be those clients that come in that have poorly defined reasons for being in treatment, or it's going to be reasons that they're being assigned to therapy, maybe cases where it's court ordered or something like that, yeah. or, you know, calling back to, you know, our men in therapy episode of you know, people being sent by family members yeah. and just not really having good therapeutic goals. Newsflash, good common factors and good therapeutic alliance building helps to get those clients back on track. But we've likely all had those clients who show up and would rather talk about literally anything else other than the reason why they're there. Sure. And so this is a client factor that comes in. And I'll point to Irvin Yalom as far as being one of the best and most concise ways of addressing clients like these to get back on track is start talking about the therapy. You know, this is not like this is just out of those deliberate practice people who are like, you know, do all of these measurements as far as what therapy is, but even just being able to have conversations of like, what are you doing here? Like, <laughs> these are the goals that you came in with and now you're talking about, you know, 90 day fiance rather than, you know, your own depression or something like that, that yeah. ends up being something where the clients end up contributing to therapeutic drift. Now, well, I think it's, it's funny because when you were saying that, I, I uh, remember a meme or a gif, what, I don't know which one it is, but anyway, it was this person that was just sitting there looking kind of confused. And they're like that feeling when you're, you start talking about 
ordering pizza on Thursday and by the end of the therapy session, you're talking about your deepest, darkest trauma or whatever. And <laughs> it was funnier when it was out there. But I think the the idea around therapist magic is that we can basically take anything and move to a therapeutic goal or a therapeutic conversation. I think when we were preparing on this and and we actually have our prep over on, on Patreon, everyone. So if you want to see what we look like when we're behind the scenes, go over there. But but you were talking about even if someone comes in without goals, and that was one of the problems we talked about on the therapy is a new religion episode, our job is to get to a goal. Yeah. It's to to figure out what that is and and you know, motivational interviewing. We have an episode on that. Um, there's a lot of different places where you can use some of this stuff to actually get to an agreed upon goal, even from the beginning of treatment. And so I think and those come of, from evidence-based practices. <laughs> well, and I think when when I think about evidence-based practices, I also think that there are still some very strong practices that don't have an evidence base because they're hard to study, right? And so I think some of the things I do, I think work very well and don't have an evidence base. And so maybe maybe I'm a drifter. Well, <laughs> but I'm not so, the only one. <laughs> so uh, Towards the end of the episode, we'll talk about practice-based evidence. All right, all right. But, you know, and I think that most of the research that we're going to reference here and is easily attainable does come from the CBT world. And yes. part of it does speak to because it is easier to study. But CBT is by no means the only theory that talks about therapeutic drift. Uh, Francine Shapiro with EMDR was, you know, talking about people coming back to her and doing consultations and her being like, you're not doing EMDR, you're doing EMDR flavored stuff. You know, we've heard feedback yeah. from guests, you know, like uh, Jamie Marich, as far as like, oh, you know, there's people who do kind of EMDR-esque things. There's a lot of clients that I have who've gotten what's called EMDR from other clients or from other clinicians. And when they describe what happened, it's not EMDR whatsoever. So part of this is a failure in building that therapeutic alliance of laying out what's going to happen in treatment and helping clients to understand what's going to happen next. This is across a bunch of theories. There's an article from the Australian and New Zealand Journal of Family Therapy that talks about therapeutic drift. So even in relational models, there is an adherence to treatment problem that we can have despite whatever theory it is that we've got coming in. So while most of the research is on CBT, this can happen with any kind of theoretical approach. Well, I actually have two questions. And I think the first one is, are we just talking about drifting away from commonly accepted practices in therapy and kind of allowing the client to talk about 90 day fiance or whatever it is? Or are we talking about not using models that have or, or be adherent to models that are, have this really strong evidence base because to me i think there's a difference there and then the the other element is is do do we need to tell our clients this is cbt or this is emgr i mean i think sometimes we do but like i know i have a lot of 
maybe it's CBT flavored interventions that I do. But then there'll be times clients will be like, hey, I heard CBT is good for this. And then I go back and explain, well, that's what we've been doing for part of what the work that we're doing. And we can do it more adherently if you'd like. And this is what that would look like. And they're like, oh, no, I don't want to do it that way. So I think it's that that element of do we need to tell our clients exactly what model we're using so they can go do research uh, on that model? And are we talking about using the model (laughs) or or just using good clinical practices that we've been trained like what what are we talking about here i guess i think i think for the most part we have an ethical responsibility when appropriate to share the model that we're working from with clients i I don't think that there's why not does it matter I mean, I guess if you're super adherent and you're doing like, this is the model we're doing, but I, like I said, I'm probably a drifter, but I use a lot of different practices. And so in my mid-session saying, okay, now I'm going to go to a narrative narrative approach. Okay, now now I'm throwing in a CBT intervention and now I'm doing like, I mean... All of those things are practices that are are typically considered effective. They have an evidence base, but I'm not adhering to a single model. We have an ethical responsibility for clients to know what it's like to have therapy with us. Sure. And I say that, but that's not like, hey, I'm doing this model. I think as long as you're clear up front, you're meeting that ethical need. So back. Back to what Back we're to, here like, to what talk. you actually want to talk about instead of me just riffing on the things that I'm interested in. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, so part of this, and this is going back to that article by Waller and Turner, is some of the therapist factors that go into therapeutic drift. And number one on their list is that we have to pick models of therapy that work. Okay. So this is where, you know, our friends over at Very Bad Therapy have a bunch of stories that get posted there, get shared there as far as things where therapists are doing stuff, but I don't know that it's necessarily things that work. And this is where, you know, going back to your point a couple of minutes ago of how strict you are to the model, I think that you can do things that are different metaphors or different ways of activating, for example, something from CBT that is out of CBT, but doesn't necessarily, you know, come off of the page. We've talked about, you know, working on anxiety, but doing it facing down the barrel of a Nerf gun of like, okay, I'm working (laughs) on anxiety here. Uh, Being able to use calming techniques in that. like, I don't know that there's a manualized treatment that says that this is what we're going to do, but it's very easy to put in our case notes of worked on clients, anxiety in session with role play (laughs) (laughs) behavioral activation of clients, target feelings and adaptive responses. You know, these are straight out of CBT. It's the form that it takes. CBT is, you know, if we're building an animal, CBT is the skeleton of it. The individual clinician factors of it are what adds out the muscles and the skin and everything else. There's a core structure there that ends up working, but we have to pick something with a core structure that works in the first place. 
Okay, but do we have to have one core structure? I mean, there's there are arguments that a lot of the models are just different language for the same thing. So for me, I feel like I can move freely between those. But it is something where there are very different models that have very different opposing and, and that's one of that the great things in this in these meta-analyses that I'm reading is that it's picking the right model that works for the right problem. This is not like, all right, if you're a really good brain spotting therapist and you have a family come in, you're not just going to have everybody sit around and do brain spotting and for 45 minutes. It's that's the wrong application of a theory to the wrong environment. Sure. So you have to you have the freedom to pick and choose which evidence works with which presentation is coming in. This is not a one size fits all argument. It's which of the evidence supports the treatment that you're facing right in front of you. And so you can switch models with an individual client when a different presenting issue shows up. Absolutely. Okay. So that's you, not how I read what you sent. It was adherent evidence-based practice. Well, it's adherent to the practices that work for the particular problem that's there. And it's okay. clarifying the priority of which ones of those you work on first or how you're going to approach them simultaneously. Okay. Number two. That's not how I read it. So I'm I'm hopeful that that I like what you're saying. Okay. I like what you're saying better than what I read. <laughs> Thrizer is a payment platform designed for out-of-network therapy. As a therapist, you would use Thrizer to charge clients for sessions and collect your full rate up front. From the client's perspective, Thrizer links to their health plan, so insurance claims are automatically submitted for them upon every charge. From there, Thrizer manages the claims end-to-end -end so that your clients don't have to worry about manually submitting super bills or getting on calls with insurance. The best part? Thrizer allows clients to only pay their co-insurance portion for sessions, while Thrizer covers the rest of your fee and waits for reimbursement on their behalf. They also offer you an instant benefits calculator for free, allowing you to provide upfront transparency to prospective clients on their out-of-network coverage. Therapists only pay a standard 3% credit card processing fee per session with no additional fees. Visit join.thrizer.com forward slash modern therapist to get started and use our promo code modern therapists to receive $2,500 in waived fees for your sessions. The next thing is even when we talk about picking the right evidence, we then have to do it. Sure. It's, it's, you know, all right. I can call this CBT, but if it's not CBT, then I'm just saying, you know, something is a different name for what it is. Sure. To that point, I think there's an element of what I do that does what you're talking about. And so I have a client, I'm very relational, we're developing goals, potentially there's a little bit of motivational interviewing, or there might be, you know, some sort of CBT structure in place, there might be other pieces. And then when we actually get to a particular discrete thing, I can see myself doing a CBT thought record. I use sure. that a lot. That's, that's something where I, I train on the, the thought record. We do the thought record. I provide them with resources so they can do it at home. And there are times within that that something comes up. And especially if it's more of a, a 
a client with either complex trauma or very big old trauma, we can we can identify one of the the core beliefs or one of the automatic thoughts is based in a trauma. And at times I may shift in that, depending on the client, I may shift in that moment, depending on where we are in treatment to then a narrative approach to talking about the trauma that's brought up because I find narrative much more helpful when talking about past trauma. That's just my personal, that's what it works. That, that's what works for me. I'm shifting in the same session from one model to the next based on what's being presented in front of me. And mm -hmm. I'm doing it without saying, okay, we're going to shift to narrative right now. And so to me, having that dynamic approach and being able to tap into a different tool because of what came up during the first one. And I'm sure there's probably times when you're doing EMDR and something comes up and there needs to be some other adjunct that comes in to help with, with the treatment. I'm assuming, I don't know, I don't know EMDR, so maybe I shouldn't make that point, but, but I don't see that as adherent. I see that as responsive and using stuff that works in the moment, but not necessarily like here is my CBT treatment. Mm -hmm. I mean, is that what you're saying? What I'm saying is that, and, and this is maybe talking about practice-based evidence a little bit earlier than I had originally planned here, but I'm going to make a case for what you're talking about first. Okay. And then I'm going to talk about what's in the research and where you fall into one of those two things, maybe in both. Okay. At uh, one of the previous Camp Daniel conferences, one of the keynote speakers was Tony Rose Manure, and he's been on our podcast here in the last couple of months. And he was talking about basically deliberate practice type things and getting client feedback. And he was showing a video of one of the sessions that he was doing with a client where he admitted, like, he's like, I probably used six or seven different theories in this one session. And he'd have various moments where he'd pause it. And there was a bunch of people in the audience who grumbled, you're confusing the client and blah, 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 and this kind of stuff. And I, I'm assuming he had done this presentation several times and was expecting that as being some of the response. But he showed at the end of the session, the session rating scale that the client had completed and how the client ended up finding that the switch between the different theories and different approaches was helpful. So this is not to say that you have to be so hyper-focused on just remaining adherent to a particular model, but you have to have the evidence that when you're switching, it works. Sure. And, and I think that that's the part that getting back into this Waller and Turner article is they point out that a lot of clinicians do things because it feels good for the clinician or it's based on the clinician's biases yeah. that these things work, but there's no follow-up that this is practice-based evidence that it actually works. And sure. so we get into kind of this freedom space of I do things because it feels good for me or because I see that things are working based on my training across a couple of different theories. But it doesn't really matter if what our feelings are of why things work, if the clients aren't also saying that this works for them. I think that's fair. 
And, and, and to be honest, I think the, the way that I often approach that is I say, there is this tool, it's called a thought record. This is what it's like. Would you like to learn it? And, and I try to identify the folks that I think would, that it would be effective with as we're going along. If something comes up and there's an activation or there's something that I feel like requires a switch, I'll say, Hey, did you want to continue with this thought record? Or do you want to address this piece that just came up right now? And this is how we might address it. So I, I, like you, I probably am a little bit more adherent than I would, <laughs> yeah. you know, and I'm definitely very client based, but I think, I think that's the distinction, right? I think I, I've also heard clients say that they've had therapists kind of go off on something that they didn't want to really talk about, but felt like they needed to, because that's what the therapist was really driving at and they weren't feeling heard and seen. And so I think that the, the distinction you're describing is we need to make sure we're checking in with the clients, whether it's a formal, you know, outcome at the end of session, or if it's a, a, in the moment, here's what, here's what the options are. What are you feeling in this moment that would be most effective for you? And this goes back to that article that I was mentioning earlier in the Australian and New Zealand Journal of Family Therapy. This is by Jeff Young. It's called Putting Single Session Thinking to Work, Conceptual Practical Training and Implementation Ideas. And what is described here is that we need to set not only the agendas at the beginning of the overall treatment, but even within each single session. And this is asking things even as simple to whether it's an individual client or a family client is, are we on track? Is this what you wanted from today's meeting, and especially if you set the agenda at the beginning of the session of, hey, at the beginning of the session, you said that you wanted to talk about this, and now we're seven miles, or you know, this being Australia, 13 kilometers away from <laughs> where you know you said that you wanted to come things have things come up in session that ends up making it to where you're better able to stay on track this is goal setting and goal adherence as opposed to just rigidly following some sort of treatment plan okay i mean i, I agree with that and i i do that i think you know anyone that's done supervision for any length of time you you have to set <laughs> set agendas and i got very com comfortable with setting agendas you know what would you like to talk about today oh i got three things okay which one is most resonant which one's most on your mind where do we want to start and try to manage the time of the session to get to the things and oh hey and we expected do you want to sh shift gears you want to keep talking about this you know those types of things so i think it i think that all makes sense i still don't see how we're we're promoting evidence-based practices though i mean are we are we fully into practice-based evidence at this point <laughs> I like it. well so i i think that even just in hearing your kind of tonal shift from like you know these articles piss me off to how this all fits together and just the more yeah. that you're kind of being like okay maybe i actually do do this mm -hmm. it's Doing that piece of it, that part where you're do doing, uh, <laughs> <laughs> that uh, software humor. Uh, <laughs> it's the part where you're doing it that you do that part of it with more intention. That's sure. where this stuff actually does all kind of come together. It's not just doing, you know, whatever it is, you know, across my career. It's, you know, I've gone from 
hearing people talk about things of, you know, I'm, I'm an eclectic therapist or, you know, stuff like that to, you know, the terminology these days is more, I'm an integrative therapist that it's, but it's doing it with intention, not just with what's most convenient. Well, and, and I think the thing when I was thinking about this and, and reading the snippets that I, I was able to get to, what frustrated me, and, and maybe this is just in the, the way these particular articles were written, is that it, it sounded like the, the goal was fit widget A into widget B, right? Or, or do it this way and, and really be adherent to a manualized treatment, which we're not agreeing with that part. We're saying do the relationship, do the common factors, all that stuff. So I'm, I'm, I'm not making you defend these articles, but I think the thing that, that kept coming up for me is that there is an element of this where a lot of the research, at least historically have been on, on single groups of folks. There's, there's oftentimes small groups of folks. It's discrete issues, discrete models, and so the evidence base to me has been hard to hold above all else. I think that having some of these promising practices, evidence-based practices, best practices, whatever it is, I think is very helpful. And when I go to trainings, I'm pulling out the things that help me. But the, the desire to be, I'll be dramatic, shackled to evidence-based practices doesn't fit for me. It doesn't fit for folks who are coming from lived experience. It doesn't fit for being able to look at cultural differences, uh, neurodevelopmental differences. Like there's so many different ways that we work and operate that yes, not all models are going to work for all clients and we need to do that assessment. That's part of being a good therapist. But I think there's also any rigidity around an adherence to a model, I think doesn't necessarily match with the types of folks who are coming into treatment in the real world. I think middle-class white college students who are going to a clinic and having a study done and have a particular discrete issue, I think it does work. But I, I go back to, I think that we have to figure out what success is and what is needed for healing and what that actually looks like. Because I think getting to a goal even sometimes may not be what some folks are looking for in treatment. I'll, I'll call back to the, is therapy the new religion uh, episode. Some people are wanting to have an ongoing dynamic process of personal growth. Is that not therapy? I mean, well, like, <laughs> no, to, to that point, though, is what we're already talking about as far as therapeutic alliance. If that's what the client says that they want and there is a best way to meet that need, you match the best way to meet that need with what the client wants. So if is there an evidence based practice that is relational? It's just have a good relationship with your client. I mean, I, I know that there was some studies being done to try to, to codify and make common factors an evidence-based practice. But as far as I know, there's not like, oh, well, the evidence suggests <laughs> that just having a good relationship with your client is sufficient. You still have those kinds of theories, whether it's analysis, whether it's Rogerian approaches, sure. that there is an evidence there. You still have to follow the principles of those treatments. It's not just sure. like, all right, you're my weekly 1 p.m. that pays me my full rate and is just here forever. Like, that's something where there's still the need to check in with, like, hey, 
how are you feeling about how treatment's going? Here's, you know, kind of where where we can go with this kind of information. What is it that you're wanting to work on, not just in this session, but over the next couple of months that is coming back to talking about the treatment itself? Not only does Therapy Notes combine billing, scheduling, notes, secure messaging, group telehealth, and more into one streamlined platform, they're also always adding new features and forms to their library. So no matter your specialty, Therapy Notes has you covered. Learn more at therapynotes.com and use promo code MODERN for two months free. I think maybe what I'm getting into is that there is this nuance around what is treatment. And I think some of the work I do with my longer standing clients is really attachment based. And it is experiential attachment. And it's someone that's in their corner helping them to process things week to week or, or month to month, however frequently they're coming in. And I think to me, I have goals and I think the client does too, but it's, it's not a, it's not like I want to have a better life. It's I want to continue to work on relationships and I'm doing that through the therapeutic relationship. <laughs> so what you're and working having, on is that. an attachment based theory without sure. necessarily calling it that. Yes. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think I may even call it that actually, as I think about it, but I think it's, it doesn't feel super goal driven. It's, it's a, it's a longer time horizon. And so I think when I'm, when I'm looking at that, when I'm saying, I'm going to be present with you, I'm going to be, I'm going to continue to root for you and what you want for your life. And I'm going to help you to sort those things out. And I'm going to experientially have relationship where we can have ruptures and repairs. We can have moments of, of deep connection. We can, you can feel very known. It's, it's almost like the, the safe space therapy versus goal-driven therapy in my mind. By the nature of it, it's, it doesn't feel goal-driven in the traditional way that I think like CBT is or even EMDR is. It's very much process. It's a, it's a process goal. And if that's what the goal is and the client agrees to it, then I think that that's fine. Okay. But you're also talking about, you know, a number of the therapist factors that are talked about in this Waller and Turner article of even our philosophical stances about what evidence-based treatment is, mm -hmm. our self-belief on how well we can deliver those. And so what they recommend is doing some self-assessment bias work. And I think that, you know, you took this to be as like, well, the CBT researchers are saying that in order to do CBT better, we need to do CBT on ourselves about CBT. And it's just all CBT all the way down. Yes. Yes, I did. I did take that a little bit literally. <laughs> <laughs> but it's, you know, even really being able to do a CBT intervention on ourselves of what are the pros and cons of some of these treatment models? You know, the where and where do those cons really come from? If a lot of our experiences of having to deliver some of these treatments in a agency type setting that really forces us to practice in ways when we've been exposed to a bunch of other theories in our graduate training or other trainings that we do that ends up becoming a point of frustration. It's not necessarily the 
evidence-based treatment that's the problem. It's the way that you were forced into doing it that was the problem. So let's, let's, I want to clarify. I know that there are potentially some, some self-assessment that might be happening just as people are listening. So, so what are the therapist factors in this? Let's list them out and and summarize them because I'm getting lost because I keep distracting us. So our knowledge base, whether or not we're actually trained in the treatment models that work. Okay. Our beliefs. So we need and, to keep getting trained. Yes. Okay. Our our beliefs and attitudes, it can be, you know, our attitudes about exposure-based methods might make us more cautious in implementing uh, hierarchies when working with things like OCD, panic disorder, eating disorders, those kinds of things. So for example, if we don't like exposure therapy because we've personally believe it's torture or awful and we don't use it, we may be shortchanging our clients because there is evidence that exposure therapy works. Correct. Okay. We can contribute to therapeutic drift by our philosophical stance, whether we view ourselves as clinicians and what works as intuition versus empiricism. So if okay, we believe that one to me. <laughs> if we believe that what makes therapy works is what the clinician's idea of what works in particular moments, kind of very intuitive, self-driven therapist factors, overly strong self-ego factors about the therapist themselves, rather than the body of evidence that seems to work. If we more strongly identify in the first category, we're going to be more prone to drifting off of what ends up working as an example of this you know my my students these days are always amazed at the amount that is written about why therapists should not sleep with their clients and it's like you know the big debate on this back in the 70s and 80s do you remember what some of the clinicians results or what some of their justifications were no some clinicians believed that it probably helps the clients if I sleep with the clients. You know, this oh, is a it makes them it, they feel it, loved. They feel loved, yeah. So <laughs> that is the the kind of example where maybe not to those extremes of like I am this agent of change that can evoke this feeling in a client because of this thing. There's a reason that sleeping with your clients is not only not part of the evidence base, but is unethical and illegal on top of it. Yeah. Well, I want to talk about this particular one a little bit more because intuition, I mean, I think it is important for clinicians to have some trust in their own intuition. I think they need to also have empiricism, but is this something where it's more trust, but verify? Like, is it, Seek out your own intuition and verify that this is the the path to go. Because yes, sleeping with your clients, if that was an intuitive leap, that's a crappy intuitive leap. But I think there are times when something is happening in the session and I intuitively jump into a question or, or, you know, kind of put forward an intervention that at times is off base and we move on or at times they're like, oh my God, I didn't say this thing because I didn't want to, but how did you know that? You know, And so I think there's that element of, 
I don't want to say clinicians shouldn't be intuitive and shouldn't trust their intuition. I mean, one argument is that our intuition comes from being very grounded in our training and that we, these are the things that common commonly will come up and we can sort through them. But I don't want to get to a place where I don't hear you saying that it's all or nothing, but it's when we I think place, intuition is valid for therapists, it, don't you think? Well, and intuition's valid in the way of like we have a whole episode on you can't trust your gut. Like intuition comes from some place, and you're bringing up if that some place is training, then you're probably doing something that's adherent to an evidence based thing. But you're talking about intuition versus empiricism. I think our intuition comes from what we know, and so. I'm saying intuition and empiricism versus intuition versus empiricism. Right? I mean, is that I, okay? I think it's I think you're making a tomato <laughs> tomato argument. All right. All right. But there's and this is not to again, this is not to be you have to rigidly follow these things that they're even within a lot of the models is building on some of that clinical intuition and into clinical judgment that allows for the flexible implementation of some of the protocols, but it's not a substitute for the protocols. And I think that that's maybe where your argument is, where I'm hearing it is you're kind of saying the same thing. Okay. Okay. That's fine. I got it now. I understand. One of the other things that is pointed out is the way that our emotions impact the way that we go about our sessions. And what Waller and Turner talk about is therapist anxiety. And there's a whole host of research on, uh, especially in the delivery of CBT, but I think that in one way or another, this is going to be across any number of treatments, is therapists with higher levels of anxiety are less likely to push clients to do things that are behaviorally activating. And they're less likely to do things like assign clients homework and follow up on the homework and make clients apply the principles learned in therapy to the other 167 hours out of the week. I think that makes sense. I, I, I certainly know at times when my anxiety is higher, I'm less likely to push things for sure. And I think there's there's definitely times when I identify the anxious thought and have to act anyway. Mm -hmm. um, but I think no. sometimes the anxiety can be personal, but it can also be based on, I don't want this client to in treatment prematurely. So I don't want to ask them how it's going or I don't want to do the things. And so I think there's that element of our anxiety. We need to address it because it can hurt our clients regardless of, of whether it's clinical or, or more uh, administrative. And, you know, especially for those in private practice where it's, if I ask it, they're like, you know what, I'm actually good. Then that's part of your income that's leaving yeah. as well. Yeah. And that is based on anxiety. And uh, Waller has another 2013 article, Waller et al., that shows that therapists who report higher levels of depression are likely to hold more negative attitudes to manualized approaches to therapy. And those therapists uh, with low self-esteem, uh, this is Simpson Southward et al., do not implement evidence-based approaches. They have lower self-esteem than those 
therapists who have higher levels of self-esteem. And I can already hear some of the audience members being like, well, of course, the CBT people are full of themselves and more likely to just <laughs> follow through on things. But I actually think that there's there's an argument for the reverse. I mean, to me, it seems like being strongly adherent to a model would be very safe. You would know exactly what to do, and you would you would be propping your own self up behind an evidence based practice. Versus, so so I would see people with lower self esteem using models more consistently, adherent models more consistently, because they don't trust their own judgment or they don't they don't feel like they can go outside of the models. So this is I'll, interesting I'll, to me that that I'll, I'll, I'll make sense the reverse. I'll, well, here's where I think anecdotally what's going to happen in in this is. When there's a protocol to follow, it can be measured how close you are to the protocol. So if you don't uh, use it, you can't get measured. So I think it's an avoidance behavior. Sure, sure. I can see that. I so, think there's probably a, a bell curve of <laughs> sure. who's adherent and the people right in the middle <laughs> and are using it. So some of the stuff back to Waller and Turner, they get into our personalities might be something that contributes to therapist okay. drift. And they show that people who are more likely to adhere to protocols if they have the trait of being open to experience and if uh, clinicians have higher levels of resilience, organization, and confidence, they have better outcomes when delivering brief evidence-based interventions. Okay. I think you have to say that one again. People who are open to experience and have higher levels of resilience, organization, and confidence have better outcomes when delivering brief evidence-based interventions. This basically boils down to, if you're really timid in being like, um, excuse me, like, to address your anxiety, like, could you possibly, maybe... I mean, some people, it's okay if it's not you, but some people might, you know, work on their anxiety a little bit better if they have to face being around the thing that triggers their anxiety every so often. But if that's not you, it's okay. Like, that is not <laughs> selling exposure and response prevention at all. Sure, but I, you, you the the impression is is pretty uh pretty bad but i i i think that the element that i i come back to is there are clients that are not going to be open to it and so maybe you don't present it to the clients if you have to present it that cautiously but i think there are some clients who would appreciate you don't have to do this but this is this is something that can work now, being so timid about it, uh, okay, maybe that's a problem, but but I don't see having caution and saying, you are in charge of your treatment and you don't have to do this, but this is something that works for folks. What do you think about it? To me, I think that's okay. I, I don't, I, I believe that oftentimes, and especially with the CBT, like the adherent, you know, like hardcore CBT folks, it's like, this is the treatment that will work. This is what we're going to do. And people saying, oh, okay, I'll try it. Versus when you have a lot of different models that you're, you're thinking about that might work, 
Well, and so this is getting into the the next point here, which is our own safety behaviors as therapists. When we run into these kinds of resistances, is it something where it's like at the first sign of a client's anxiety towards a treatment that we just jump to the next theoretical model that doesn't have to have our clients face those issues? That this is being able to say, all right, I'm accommodating you. But am I also enabling you while doing that accommodation? And I think that's a really hard question because we've we've had other conversations and I'll see if I can find them and put them in the show notes. But but like, is it resistance or are you pushing your own agenda? To me, it seems like we need to be present for the client, but we also need to be able to encourage them, empower them to do hard things. And so I think that's where... These are this is where nuance comes in, and I think each person's personality is going to show this show up with this differently. But yeah, if somebody's not willing to push forward with something in any way or or whatever, I think there's the the option: do you terminate treatment if they're just not they're not doing anything? They're not they're act, not actually working on anything because they don't want to do this treatment that you think is the evidence based practice that would work best. Well, so this is where, again, you do the check-in with the clients as far as saying, hey, we agreed that this was a pathway that we were going to go. You're, you know, running into, you know, some some growth edges here or, you know, what comes next in this approach doesn't seem to be working for you. Here's what our options are. Here's ways that we can address this in being able to do our work here. It's coming back to that therapeutic alliance. It's not just making that accommodating jump without coming back to how is treatment working? What's working for this out of you? Or what's working out of this for you and what's not working out of this? So that way we can be able to address the problem together rather than just making a jump into whatever's the next convenient thing. So it's just, it's continuing to come back to, we need to be checking in with the client. Yes. But I think when, when we talk about resistance and all of that, I prefer to work with resistance with the client. Are, is that what you're saying? Is saying, identifying the resistance saying, hey, you, you're showing resistance to this idea. Let's talk about what that's about and determine if this is not the right treatment for you or it just is scary for you. I mean, is Correct. that kind of what you're talking about? Okay. Yeah, that's that's addressing it with the client. It's not just being like, well, that didn't work. It's time to throw out CBT to narrative to essential oils and just be like, here, smell this. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that smells. <laughs> <laughs> so the last several points here is uh, about the therapist factors that goes into things deal with how therapists what kind of work environment they are particularly in their social contexts the more that we hang out with other people who work like us the more that we engage in peer supervision the more that we engage in clinical supervision or mentorship type things the more likely we are to remain on track with what we're doing and this is a lot of again things that are supported out of deliberate practice of like we get mentors and we 
get good ongoing clinical supervision or good consultation about things. So that way we're getting just a different perspective. We're not just mired in our own biases of, hey, this seems to be working. You've got to be able to explain this to other people as far as why this works as well. So a lot of what you're talking about with the therapist factors, and please add on because that we went all over the place and so I don't have them all kind of in my memory, but it seems like there's this element of rigidity, lack of thought, lack of kind of checking in with the client or being able to to explain to the client what it is being done. Like to me, it seems like the the therapist factors really come back to philosophy, thinking we know better and and not feeling confident enough to either do the evidence-based practices or to make our clients do them. Okay. Because to me, it, it just keeps, we keep saying, work with the client, check with the client and do things that work. And I feel like that is self-evident, but I think this other piece, and this is something that I think some folks may struggle with, and, and this is really important to consider, is getting a, a community or a supervisor or or consultant that can help make sure that you're on track. Because I think I can have in my head, this is what I'm working on and this is how I'm working on it. But if I don't actually have to tell anybody that, I can just be sitting in a room with a person and drifting off into hanging out with a client and not doing a whole lot that's really effective. And so it's 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 actually trying to be very strategic with that and getting some consultation that kind of holds an accountability there. Yeah. So what else might be causing this drift, young man? So we also need to look at some of the systemic contributions to this. And I'm going to kind of, as we're nearing the end of our episode here, I'm going to point at two kind of institutional places to keep the focus on this. This isn't necessarily the only places of them, but I'm going to start with earlier in our career. One of the places that contributes to therapeutic drift is the very way that our educational system for therapists is set up. That as the licensing tests tackle that every therapist needs to know every theory that's being in practice, that the graduate institutions in response to that then have a responsibility to teach the theories that are on the test. And even in the time since you and I have been in graduate school 20-ish years ago uh, for you, 15-ish years ago for me, but even since I was in grad school and knowing the curriculum of what's being taught in the programs that I'm in, talking with graduate students, talking with postgraduate pre-licensed people is the number of theories that students are expected to be taught and expected to learn and that they're tested on as part of their graduate program does not allow for them to reach any sort of depth of actually being trained very well on most of these, if at all. Yeah, th- so- we had a, a good conversation with Diane Gayhart about this on one of an episode. I'll, I'll, I'll stick that in the show notes too. And so if we're not training people very well on things, and there's kind of you know this, I guess, field-wide approach of like, yeah, I guess whatever theory you're going to get, you know, trained on well, that's going to happen at your agency. That it's, mm. you know, there, there's just kind of this nobody's stepping up and being like, you know what? We really should get people to focus on core competencies of 
a handful of theories rather than an ever-growing amount of expensive books that you know dive deeply into things but only get one or two chapters assigned out of them. So not being taught early enough in our career an in-depth enough model to work from is one of the contributing factors of if we enter into our education with like, all right, every week's a new flavor of therapy, it, we're going to be more prone to behaviorally doing that when we're actually delivering therapy out in the real world. No. Yeah, the the sheer number of models is ridiculous. And I think for me, yeah, getting trained 20-ish years ago, I I really felt like I was trained pretty well. And it was kind of grounding in psychodynamic and CBT at the same time. And it's really interesting how similar they actually are. <laughs> <laughs> that was one of the arguments was that they actually just were the same thing with different names. But the other systemic thing that I'm going to point to here as well, and we've kind of broached this a little bit even in this episode here, but it's agencies that are delivering treatment to get people, you know, through a rapid number of sessions to, you know, reduce the symptomology and funding runs out that yeah. does not allow for the actual adherence to even the evidence-based treatments that they're potentially selling. Or that they're potentially advertising out to consumers or funding sources or these kinds of things. So if you're in an agency where, you're, you know, crap on CMH here for a moment, but if you're in an agency where it's like, all right, you've got 12 sessions to deliver CBT to this client, as an agency policy, you know, bean counter, you are going to be able to do CBT in 12 sessions because this one, you know, research article justifies what my funding sources are. If that doesn't allow for you to actually do the appropriate approach for what the client's problem is, of course, you're going to drift off of what you're being assigned. And this leads to a lot of poor practice and a lot of poor feelings about evidence-based treatments that could potentially work if given the appropriate structure and setup to make them work. Completely agree. I think that the challenge that I saw in community mental health was that there just wasn't enough time to truly dig in sufficiently. And I think there was also the models chosen were based on very uh, short-term models. And so you have a client that comes in with a very complex presentation and you're doing 12 sessions of trauma-focused CBT, like, you, you can't address it all. And it becomes, especially for neuroclinicians, it becomes really hard to like, how do you sort through what it is I do? Okay, well, I guess I just follow this model and all will be well. I have another systemic thing that I was thinking about because I think it's something that I've faced at different points in my career. Later on, when, when it's up to our, us as clinicians to continue, get continued education, potentially dig deeper into a model, it is hugely expensive and or really hard to get the the right training and and i'm thinking is it eft or ifs one of them has like a lottery to get into like people can't even get the official training unless they they win the lottery mm -hmm. <laughs> and so i think there's this element of super expensive training and protocols that isn't approachable for everyone and so you know the we we have too many models to choose from that we don't know much about in grad school, 
we go into some sort of an agency or, or even into a private practice, honestly, where somebody has, this is how I work. And you either have the time to do it or you don't, you learn about it or you don't. And that's kind of where you're stuck unless you then can spend thousands of dollars to get one of these more robust trainings and get certified in it and, and feed the, uh, <laughs> the therapy <laughs> trading complex. And, and it just, it doesn't feel approachable. It, it doesn't. I mean, it, it, like I even just because I, I think I would like to get trained in EMDR, but it takes so much friggin' time and it's expensive. So I'm like, okay, I need to be able to be present. I need to be able to do this thing. And it's also expensive. Mm -hmm. And so it's really hard to then as a clinician invest in yourself or even to figure out which one you want to do because you're like signing away half <laughs> half a month's salary or something in order to try to get something and it just it feels it feels really daunting and so i think that it makes sense that people are not especially in an adherent way sticking to some of these evidence-based practices if they just don't have the time or money or previous training to be able to do that so in order to reduce this stuff you know some takeaway things uh as much as we like to talk about here's policy changes that can happen, I don't think that this is something that gets done with policy sorts of stuff. I mean, maybe the reduction of the number of theories that have to be taught within graduate programs. Or even insurance and kind of Medicaid limits on on treatment and, sure. and how they are run. Because in, in agencies, evidence-based practices are about 10% doing whatever the manualized treatment is and like 90% all of the paperwork. <laughs> and so in the absence of a strong policy suggestion here, sure. this is one of those things where, all right, this is the system that we're in. And some of these responsibilities do fall to us as individuals in order to address these things. And so if it's start doing more evidence gathering about your practice. So that way that you can talk with clients of like, here's why I'm veering off of this model at this point, based on what is effective with me and the interventions that I use in my practice, I'm going to introduce maybe a new option here. How does that work with you? So part of this is keeping track of your own success rates. Yeah. Part of this is join peer consultation groups, get a, you know, uh, consultate, get feedback from somebody who does these kinds of treatments better than you. So that way you can continue to learn and continue to be able to stick to the parts of your treatments that do have an evidence base. So that way you're practicing legal and ethically. But this really does come down to like check in on your own biases towards this stuff. I had originally thought in conceiving of this episode that, all right, Therapeutic drift. You know, we do hear these stories of like people walking out of sessions being like, I didn't talk about what I wanted to talk about at all. Sure. And then I kind of went through this growth phase of looking at all of this background stuff of like, ah, this is just CBT people talking about CBT stuff. But the more that I dug into this, and hopefully you're feeling kind of the same way, is this isn't a push just towards being very judicious towards using the models or anything that doesn't look like it isn't good therapy. This is more of be very intentional with what you're doing, have reasons for doing it. 
don't just be reactive to things. Have a plan and make sure that with your clients, therapy is working. That makes sense. You can find our show notes over at mtsgpodcast.com. You can follow the directions on the intro and outro to get CE credits for this over in our Modern Therapist community. Join our Facebook group, the Modern Therapist group. Follow us on our social media. And if you like this longer form of content, it definitely helps us out if you consider becoming a patron or supporting us through Buy Me a Coffee. And until next time, I'm Kurt Widhelm with Drifting Less Than She Thought, Katie Vernoy. <laughs> Remember to check out Thryzer. They are passionate about making out-of-network therapy work for everyone. Clients save upfront on therapy while therapists earn their full rate. Get started in minutes on join.thrizer.com forward slash modern therapist and use the promo code modern therapists and receive $2,500 in waived fees for your sessions. Thanks so much to our partner, Therapy Notes, the highest rated practice management solution for behavioral health. Don't forget, using promo code modern gets you two free months. Just a quick reminder, if you'd like one unit of continuing education for listening to this episode, go to moderntherapistcommunity.com, purchase this course, and pass the post-test. A CE certificate will appear in your profile once you've successfully completed the steps. Once again, that's moderntherapistcommunity.com. Thank you for listening to the Modern Therapist Survival Guide. Learn more about who we are and what we do at mtsgpodcast.com. You can also join us on Facebook and Twitter. And please don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss any of our episodes.